I love Roto World. I really do. This is a fantasy football news and information service that tells it like it is. There's a reason why our enterprise is called Roto Underworld. Because we aspire to be Roto Worldian in the quality of our information and in the honesty with which we communicate. This was Roto World's analysis of Jarvis Landry's. Quote unquote performance last night. It reads as follows. Jarvis Landry caught 5 of 12 targets for 33 yards in the Dolphins' Week 8 loss to the Ravens. In potentially the quote-unquote, this is fine. (laughs) Yes! Yes! This is fine box score of the year. Landry entered halftime 1 of 6 for negative 4 yards. By the grace of garbage time, his stat line marginally improved in the meaningless final 30 minutes of the Dolphins' nightmare 40-0 loss. (laughs) I love it! Give me more, Roto World! Feed me! Feed me the Jarvis Landry haters coursing through my veins. The Dolphins are headed home for a softer Week 9 matchup in the Raiders, but Devontae Parker should finally be back, knocking Landry back down to the wide receiver 2 slash wide receiver 3 borderline zone in fantasy football. Yes. Yes. That is what Jarvis Landry is. Operating as a complementary receiver in a below-average offense in Miami. That is what Jarvis Landry is. When Devontae Parker is healthy, Jarvis Landry is a high-end WR3 because there's competition for targets from better, more efficient receivers, and the offense is neither prolific nor efficient. It's just math. Do the math. On the targets and the efficiency. Just run the numbers and you'll see. Jarvis Landry's not a valuable fantasy asset. Period. And this is something I've been saying for years. That Jarvis Landry's gross. That as a player, Jarvis Landry is not a true number one NFL receiver. He's just not. When you look at Jarvis Landry in a vacuum, he's not. And all you need is one number. One efficiency metric says it all. The career yards per target. 7.1. No starting receiver over the last four years has a yards per target lower than 7.5. That yards per target is like a riddle. It's so low given his target share. The feeding of Jarvis Landry the last four years, I would argue, is the most irrational action taken by an NFL franchise. And it makes sense. This is the Dolphins. This is a Dolphins team that lost Snowflake the mascot. They lost Snowflake. Lost him. It's also the same team that chose Dante Culpepper over Drew Brees in the ultimate sliding doors decision point in the franchise's history. Had they signed Drew Brees instead of Dante Culpepper, Nick Saban might still be the coach. We wouldn't have had Alabama Gate. 
yet another Miami Dolphins scandal where Nick Saban said, oh, I'm staying. I'm the coach. I'm not talking to Alabama. I have no intention to leave. And then the next day (laughs) was holding a press conference at the University of Alabama announcing that he was their next coach. (laughs) Liar! I mean, what? So Dolphins. Then the Dolphins had a bullying scandal where Rich Incognito lost his job because he was bullying another offensive lineman. Not to mention all the racial slurs that Richie Incognito was lobbing behind the scenes that came out later. That Richie Incognito, woo, that guy has a mouth on him. And now he's road grading for the Bills and contributing to LaShawn McCoy's fantasy success. Of course. Of course. They lose Wes Welker. He goes to the Patriots. They lose Richie Incognito. He goes to the Bills. (laughs) It's the Dolphins. So Dolphins. There was a scandal that helped them. Laramie Tunsil's gas mask bong, he was supposed to be drafted in the top five picks, don't forget. And then he fell outside the top ten into the Miami Dolphins' open arms. Yes. It's just marijuana. (laughs) What? That's nothing. We're Miami. We invented cocaine. Maybe they didn't invent cocaine, but that Cocaine Cowboys documentary, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And then just two weeks ago, it was just two weeks ago. It seems like years ago, but just two weeks ago, their offensive line coach was doing blow in the office and videotaping it and sending it to a stripper. He thought that was a good idea. Not the doing blow on the desk, sending the video to a stripper. I mean, feel free to do cocaine at work. Go ahead. It's not smart, but you do you. Just don't videotape it. I mean, what? And then if you're going to videotape it, you don't send it to a stripper. Like, what? It's just dolphins. This is dolphins, and you should have known. Losing snowflakes set off a chain reaction of events that have led us here. Led us to the moment. Led us down a path of misguided to boneheaded decision-making that culminates in the greatest scandal of all. Jarvis Landry's 7.1 career yards per target on 487 career targets. (laughs) What? That's the greatest scandal of them all. And only could this happen in Miami to the Miami Dolphins. After the Cleveland Browns, you could argue the Miami Dolphins are the most wayward franchise in the NFL because the Jacksonville Jaguars look good. Miami fans look north to Jacksonville with envy now. And the best part is, they have a winning record. The Miami Dolphins are 4-3, and three, right? And yet, their fan base is embarrassed, as they should be. One of the most incompetent franchises in sports. Just doomed, cursed with no hope on the horizon. Just bloated contracts that you know will implode, like Ndamukong Suze. No franchise quarterback waiting in the wings. No exciting young playmakers, with the exception of Leonte Carew, who they refuse to play. So there you go. Just dolphins. Remember, Adam Gaze could have worked anywhere. He was the hot young coach two years ago. Every franchise that needed a head coach wanted Adam Gaze. And when he chose Miami, it was an SMH moment. Bad decision. Bad choice. They don't have a quarterback. You don't walk into a franchise that's in quarterback purgatory. You're at least three years away at that point. What are you doing? Not to mention how misguided their player personnel decisions had been up until that point. 
The move was to go to Los Angeles, to go to the Rams. The number one overall pick, Jared Goff, waiting in the wings. Jared Goff with an 18.8 breakout age. Upper 90th percentile breakout age. Number one overall pick quarterback. You go to the team with a prodigy quarterback, an improving offensive line, a proper bell cow running back, the league's most disruptive defensive player, Aaron Donald. That was the move. Adam Gaze got some bad advice. Someone somewhere at some point told him it would be a good idea to sign with the Dolphins. <laughs> now his reputation is forever tethered to the success or failure of the Miami Dolphins. And we know how this story ends. It ends in failure. Every single time. Big mistake, Adam. Huge. At least Jay Gruden was able to unearth a quarterback from the third string position on the depth chart. Remember, when Jay Gruden took over in Washington, the number one quarterback was Robert Griffin. The number two quarterback was Colt McCoy. The number three quarterback was Kirk Cousins. The number three quarterback on the Miami Dolphins is Brandon Darty, and he will never become a quality NFL starter. Book it. So there's no hope in Miami for Adam Gase. I mean, it's over now. The Adam Gase tenure in Miami is over. And I'm telling you two years before he's fired that it's over now. We can look forward understanding the pieces that Miami has compiled on the roster, what their cap space looks like moving forward, what their quarterback situation looks like heading into the next couple years. And I can tell you, Adam Gase is doomed. He should resign now while they're four and three. That's what I would do if I were Adam Gase. I would resign now. I would say, you know what? I can't do it. I just can't. When I learned that my offensive line coach was doing lines on his desk during work hours, at that moment I realized this environment was just too dysfunctional and I'm resigning. That was the move. You can leave Miami a perceived winner. Make the playoffs in the first year. Winning record in the second year. Cocaine scandal. Resign. Salvage your reputation. You're a winner. You're an NFL winner, Adam. Get out now! Stop Feeding Jarvis Landry. Just stop doing it. I can't believe that Jarvis Landry has been fed like a proper number one wide receiver, even though he looks nothing like a prototypical number one wide receiver and doesn't perform like a number one wide receiver across the tenure of three separate coaching staffs. It's unbelievable to me. It truly is stunning when you look at Jarvis Landry's advanced metrics. No one gives you less with more than Jarvis Landry. On any given pass attempt, the Miami Dolphins are always better off targeting any receiver in the passing game other than Jarvis Landry. If there were a war for football, which there is not, wins above replacement, targets headed in Jarvis Landry's direction result in the least number of wins. The advanced metrics on playerprofiler.com tell us this. And what about Jay Ajayi? Jay Ajayi is just a guy. He's very good at breaking tackles. He is. But they continue to use Damian Williams on passing downs. I don't understand why, but they do. I think Jay Ajayi is a high-end grinder. I think Jay Ajayi is very similar to Carlos Hyde. And Carlos Hyde has been a very productive running back when healthy. But these are not running backs with ability that is significantly above average. I would rather have Carlos Hyde. I think Carlos Hyde has been the more consistent producer, whereas Jay Ajayi has been incredibly volatile throughout his career. You just never know what you're going to get with Jay Ajayi. Jay Ajayi is the league's ultimate trick-or-treat running back. That's the name of the show, Jay Ajayi Trick-or-Treat. Whereas 
Carlos Hyde is a metronome. It's very consistent. You're going to be in that 12 to 20 point zone week in, week out with Carlos Hyde. And neither the San Francisco 49ers nor the Miami Dolphins have quality run blocking offensive lines. They're not efficient run blocking units. Miami's is worse, which is why Jay Ajayi posted 1.8 yards per carry yesterday. But these are not quality run blocking units. You put Carlos Hyde or Jay Ajayi behind a quality run blocking unit and you will be very impressed with their production. And yet their talent profiles are not significantly above replacement. And this is going to be a problem heading into this offseason. You have a lot of running backs like Carlos Hyde, like Jay Ajayi, like Mark Ingram, who are producing RB1 numbers in fantasy football, and yet they might not have jobs next year. It's a long list of running backs that are good, not great, who will be threatened by the incoming 2018 rookie running back class. So be very careful trading for running backs in dynasty leagues. If it's not Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, Ezekiel Elliott, Kareem Hunt, Leonard Fournette, be careful. Now, no one can compete for Christian McCaffrey's role in Carolina. So Christian McCaffrey is also a safe bet in dynasty leagues, but there are very few safe bets. From Doug Martin to Jay Ajayi to Lamar Miller to DeMarco Murray, Amir Abdullah, Ty Montgomery, Carlos Hyde, Jordan Howard, even Melvin Gordon is vulnerable. The 2018 class is incredibly talented at the top. So it's a top-heavy class with Saquon Barkley and Nick Chubb. But it could also feature Bo Scarborough. It could also feature Darius Geis. Those two players have years of eligibility remaining. But it could be the epic running back class of all time, led by Saquon Barkley. Because Saquon Barkley will immediately become a top five running back in the league. A top five dynasty back the moment he's drafted. So I received numerous questions about dynasty trades and acquiring running backs to make a run this year. And that's fine. Go out and acquire Mark Ingram to make a run in your dynasty league this year. Just do not overpay. I mean, who would be surprised if Isaiah Crowell isn't in the league next year? C.J. Anderson isn't in the league next year. Marshawn Lynch isn't in the league next year. Latavius Murray isn't in the league next year. Adrian Peterson isn't in the league next year. Mike Gillisley isn't in the league next year. It's very plausible because this incoming class is not only elite at the top, it's incredibly deep. The high-profile running backs that all the dynasty leaguers and Devi leaguers are celebrating now are well-known. And on teams like Georgia, there are running backs behind Nick Chubb that will be drafted and look like quality prospects. Sony Michelle. But these are just the major conference program running backs. They're enough to get excited about. The small conference running backs have yet to be unearthed. We don't know who the Aaron Joneses and the Kareem Hunts are yet. We will soon. The pre-draft process will start in earnest in just a couple months. Suddenly, some of these small school running backs will start to pop. And then we're looking at 10 to 20 high-quality running backs entering the league. So this talent influx will crowd out and marginalize numerous very productive running backs. So be careful. And I really hope you drafted Aaron Jones in Dynasty. I sincerely hope you have Aaron Jones in Dynasty because it's exciting. Because I think Aaron Jones is one of the few safe running backs. I think that the Green Bay Packers have realized 
what they have in Aaron Jones. We talked to Pat Corain from Rotoviz a couple days ago on the program, and he called it. He said, it's over. The competition is over. Aaron Jones is the man. We had a show titled Aaron Jones is the man a couple weeks ago. And I believe Aaron Jones will be entrenched as the number one running back on the Packers moving forward based on his performance against New Orleans. And we told you this would happen. We said bid whatever it takes to get Aaron Jones three weeks ago. You think you've bid enough? Bid more. Why was that? Why was that? Because we saw the buy looming. And the week before the bye, the opponent, the New Orleans Saints. And what did Aaron Jones do against the New Orleans Saints? 138 total yards. Three receptions and a touchdown. 22.8 fantasy points. The number four running back last week was Aaron Jones splitting touches with Ty Montgomery. I love Ty Montgomery. But Ty Montgomery suddenly looks like a satellite back plus. He suddenly looks like Duke Johnson, not David Johnson. Five weeks ago, he looked like David Johnson. Now he looks like Duke Johnson, and that's okay. He still has great value. The satellite backs are at less risk than the the between-the-tackles grinders when this influx of talent crashes into NFL depth charts from the collegiate ranks. Oftentimes, the satellite backs are safe. Because there are very few Christian McCaffreys and Alvin Kamaras in each draft class. I mean, Ito Smith will take some satellite backs job in 2018. We know that to be the case. But that's one guy. This is how the Giovanni Bernards and the Shane Vereens continue to carve out significant roles on NFL rosters. While the between the tackles grinders in their late 20s just fall away and fall out of the league, which is what I believe will happen to a C.J. Anderson, for example. So as it turns out, picking up Aaron Jones in hopes of getting huge production against Dallas in Week 5 and New Orleans in Week 7 was a genius move. You're welcome. What can I say except you're welcome for the tides, the sun, the sky. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, you're welcome. Just an ordinary demi-guy. Hey, what has 20.4 fantasy points in week five, number four overall among running backs. 22.8 fantasy points in week seven, number four overall among running backs. That second breakout game was much more important for Aaron Jones than the first one. Can you repeat the performance? Because there's nothing worse than receiving some tweet with a single game talent evaluation. You need to go watch the tape of Player X against Team X, Matt Kelly. Your analysis is flawed because you haven't seen Player X play Team X. Go watch that game, and that will change your mind. No, it won't! No, it won't! So many fantasy drones tweeting me, I need to go watch this game or that game from Jarvis Landry that will change my mind. No, it won't! I have four years of receptions, yards, and targets from Jarvis Landry. That's all I need to see at this point. We have historical production premiums. We have historical target premiums. It's all available in data analysis. Playerprofiler.com forward slash data dash analysis. And today, we reduced the price. It was $85 to start the season. Now, the season's halfway over. The fantasy season is anyway. So, it's now $45. So, you can take a test drive of data analysis, our rankings, our lineup optimizer, and the cornerback pages for half the price 
for nine more weeks of fantasy football. It's a great deal. It's worth it just to go to the Jalen Ramsey cornerback page. I love the Jalen Ramsey cornerback page because he's so good. And his best comparable player is Aqib Tlaib. And he has a 1037 99th percentile catch radius because he's big and fast and explosive and agile. He hasn't been burned once all year. His burn rate on playerprofiler.com is zero. His coverage rating is in the top 10. His passer rating allowed is in the top 10. His fantasy points per target allowed is in the top 10. We also have average cushion per snap. And of course, Jalen Ramsey excels in that metric as well. But that metric is only available via data analysis because now we have metrics that are data analysis only because we have so many, we can't fit them all on the page. I mean, if you put Jalen Ramsey on Jarvis Landry, I believe that Landry would accrue negative yards per target as he did in the first half last night. So this is the perfect time to sign up for Player Profiler's premium content that allows you to zoom out and see the full picture on a player and stop with the single game evaluations. If you tweet me some single game evaluation as evidence that I am wrong about a player, that's stupid. I mean, that's all that is. It's just stupid. There's no better way to say it. I don't have a euphemism to soften that criticism. It's just stupid. Jonas Gray had 200 yards and four touchdowns in a game. Matt Flynn threw for over 400 yards and six touchdowns in a game. Stop waving around the single game performances unless it's Jeff Janis. Then go ahead. And I think many NFL coaches that are in charge of play calling are calling stupid plays. It's strong criticism, but it's true. We're celebrating Roto World today. And one of my favorite analysts in the industry, Evan Silva, tweeted, He loves how Washington has embraced Thompson as their primary back. Quote-unquote regression won't hit as his usage rises. We talked about this with Pat Corain, that Chris Thompson actually has a 10-point floor because of the target share. And Chris Thompson is a difference maker, so he makes big plays. The splash plays that we're looking for, the touchdowns. We like long touchdowns in fantasy, don't we? Don't we? Don't we? Yes? Okay. Then you like Chris Thompson. And a lot of NFL teams have an explosive satellite back on their roster that they're underutilizing, and that is stupid. I mean, not all teams. Some teams know what they have, and they use their explosive assets often, as they should. For example, as soon as Deion Lewis proved healthy, Deion Lewis was leading the Patriots running backs in touches. But Duke Johnson's proved healthy, and he's not leading Brown's running backs in touches. Tariq Cohen has proven to be the next Darren Sproles, and uh, his touches have been throttled week by week by week by week. And you look at the Tariq Cohen RB opportunity share. We have a graph on playerprofiler.com. You scroll down. It's just a downward sloping curve. And that to me is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for the coaches when I see that because it's so clearly suboptimal to continue to pound away with Jordan Howard instead of pitching it out wide to Tariq Cohen. So few teams optimize their backfield talent by feeding dynamic satellite backs. But when they do, like the Patriots, like Washington, it stands out. And you might say, well, what about the Saints? What about Alvin Kamara? And that's a curious case because historically, Mark Ingram has been one of the top 10 most efficient running backs in all of fantasy. Look at the fantasy points per opportunity for Mark Ingram. He's top 10 every year, according to our data analysis tool. So it's difficult for me to say the Saints should be feeding Alvin Kamara over Mark Ingram when all he's done is produce and 
and produce efficiently, which is different than Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry's been producing fantasy points, but he has not been doing it efficiently. Mark Ingram has. Now, the Dolphins' former running back, Lamar Miller, is more like Jarvis Landry. We called Lamar Miller a fake bell cow. Well, Jarvis Landry is the fake bell cow of wide receivers. (laughs) No matter what point I'm making... I will find a way to bend it back around to criticize Jarvis Landry. <laughs> so based on Mark Ingram's efficiency and his usage the last couple of weeks, he's operating as a workhorse back in one of the league's signature prolific and efficient offenses. So he's clearly a trade target in seasonal leagues, but I would be very careful about trading for him in Dynasty. Now, what about Juju Smith-Schuster? Should we be trading for him in Dynasty? I'd be careful. I would be careful about trading for a number two wide receiver with no chance to ascend to the number one wide receiver chair unless the incumbent Antonio Brown is injured and Antonio Brown is almost never injured. He suffered a serious concussion in a playoff game and that's about it. So low probability of injury for Antonio Brown and Antonio Brown will be the number one option in the Steelers passing game through the end of Juju Smith-Schuster's rookie contract. So Juju Smith-Schuster's talent profile is more impressive in a vacuum than it is in the context of the Pittsburgh Steelers offense run by Ben Roethlisberger. You have a declining Ben Roethlisberger at the helm who's 50-50 to retire at the end of the season. He was considering retiring last season and he's played significantly worse this season with better weaponry. Think about that. Your weaponry's improved. You have Juju Smith-Schuster and Martavis Bryant and yet your efficiency has declined significantly. That's a problem. Ben Roethlisberger's adjusted yards per attempt, 6.2, number 20 in the league. His production premium on any given down and distance, what is Ben Roethlisberger giving you above or below expectation? Negative 14.4, 26th in the NFL. His passer rating is 86.2. That's 28th in the NFL. And his receivers have only dropped eight passes all season. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse for a .36 fantasy points per drop back which is 27th in the NFL. It's bad. He's not helping you by rushing for touchdowns or yards either. He has negative nine rushing yards on the year and zero touchdowns. This guy is not a fantasy asset. You don't want the number two wide receiver tethered to a non-entity at quarterback. You need a quarterback that can sustain two very fantasy viable wide receivers. And Ben Roethlisberger is not that guy right now based on the metrics. But I still would play Juju Smith-Schuster this week on No Halftime. Absolutely. Go to NoHalftime.com. Go to the App Store. Search for No Halftime. Download the No Halftime app and challenge your friends with Juju Smith-Schuster. That's the beauty of No Halftime. They facilitate single-player props. I can't believe this is legal, but it is. So enjoy it. And when you go to No Halftime and sign up, use the promo code UNDERWORLD to get an instant 50% deposit bonus up to $50. It's free money, and it's fun. This week, I think Juju Smith-Schuster will outproduce Will Fuller. I do. Will Fuller? Will Fuller's a touchdown machine. Not this week. Be very careful playing Will Fuller this week because Shaq Griffin has been a revelation in Seattle taking the place of Jeremy Lane, who's been out. And if I'm the Seahawks, I hope Jeremy Lane stays out so that Shaq Griffin can continue to start. Well, uh, Fuller runs the sub 4440, so he'll burn Shaq Griffin. Uh, no, he won't. Shaq Griffin also runs a sub 4440. He has upper percentile workout metrics across the board. 
Shaq Griffin is more athletic than Will Fuller. So the touchdown store will be closed this week to Will Fuller. I'm interested to see how Deshaun Watson performs against one of the NFL's most stout defenses over the last five years, the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, we'll see. I'll be very interested to see if Deshaun Watson is up to the task. And whether he's up to the task or not, I don't think his production will run through Will Fuller this week. And you certainly won't be playing Martavis Bryant, (laughs) right? That's the case for playing Juju Smith-Schuster. Martavis Bryant's out. Now, I understand Juju Smith-Schuster is a flanker. Martavis Bryant is a stretch X player. They're very different players, play different roles. I understand that. So Darius Hayward Bay will assume the Martavis Bryant inefficient field stretcher role. But regardless, this means more snaps, more routes for Juju Smith-Schuster and less competition for targets, which means Juju Smith-Schuster will likely go over five targets, set a career high in targets for a game, and be very fantasy viable this week. We have Juju Smith-Schuster as a top 36 option in fantasy football. He's a low-end WR3. He's right there with Ted Ginn and Jamison Crowder and Marquise Goodwin and Josh Doxson. Willie Sneed. Hopefully we see Willie Sneed finally active and targeted. Just activate him and target him. Just one, once, once. I want to see Willie Sneed play. I want to see what he can do. We touted him for months. Just one week of Willie Sneed, please. But what happened to Martavis Bryant? That's the question. It's a mystery. It's the riddle of the year. What happened? Why does he want to trade? How did this rift start? How has he been so ineffective this year? How? Well, first of all, I don't think Martavis Bryant was ever particularly good. Because when you zoom out and you look at his full profile, going all the way back to his time at Clemson, he wasn't productive on a relative basis. I mean, his maximum yards ever compiled at any level of football is 838 at Clemson. He has never exceeded 800 yards at the professional level. Let me say that again. Martavis Bryant has never exceeded 800 yards at the professional level. So why was anyone excited about this guy? Well, I was. I was in the offseason. I was excited about his upside. Who wasn't? A starting receiver tethered to Ben Roethlisberger in a prolific offense is exciting. Has to be. Doesn't matter if he's never posted more than 838 yards ever in his career at any level of football. 115.195th percentile speed score, 128.3, 84th percentile burst score. This is an exciting player. But the downside was out of football by week seven. This was a classic high ceiling, low floor, lottery ticket lever you pull in the sixth and seventh round once your starting wide receivers have been drafted. Once you've established your core wide receiver group, you're then afforded the luxury of taking chances on a Martavis Bryant. That's the beauty of zero RB. We said take a chance on Martavis Bryant, not Terrell Pryor, because Terrell Pryor was too expensive. Terrell Pryor was being drafted in the second and third rounds. No difference between Terrell Pryor and Martavis Bryant. Very similar players. 95th percentile plus speed scores without a history of production to back them up. Just starting jobs and speed scores. Starting jobs and speed scores. 
Granted, tethered to Ben Roethlisberger and Kirk Cousins is exciting. It's not just any starting job. It's a starting wide receiver job on a prolific offense. That's key. That's why their upside was so high. These were very high ceiling players whose floors were unusable in fantasy. So the ultimate risk-reward play, it's just that Martavis Bryant was being drafted at slot 60 as opposed to Terrell Pryor being drafted at slot 30. Martavis Bryant was a better play all along because he was an inexpensive version of the same asset. But one of the reasons why I recoil from the financial jargon used in fantasy football is that it dehumanizes the player. And I'm guilty of it like everyone else. I just called Martavis Bryant an asset. And I will continue to call football players assets in the context of fantasy football, even though I would admit that it is dehumanizing. I'm self-aware enough to know that. Because Martavis Bryant is very much human. What Martavis Bryant is going through is very much human. Lashing out at his teammates. That's human. Who hasn't lashed out at a co-worker? Resentment is human. But so is addiction. So you have to ask the question now. You must. Is Martavis Bryant sober? I don't know. But if you're not asking that question, you're not paying attention. Because this erratic, self-destructive behavior is the behavior of an addict of an addict who's been triggered. Stressful events and life challenges are what lead many sober people to turn to some substance that can help to relieve the pain or the anxiety. So it is fair to wonder what's happening right now with Martavis Bryant's brain chemistry. It's why we always talk about players in terms of value. It's always a value conversation. And the only reason Martavis Bryant was ever relevant in the NFL is because of Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger was the reason why Martavis Bryant ever emerged as an exciting fantasy option with upside. Imagine Martavis Bryant with a game manager quarterback. We wouldn't even know his name. He would have been unused and completely neutered with a game manager quarterback. But with Ben Roethlisberger, someone who dares to throw the ball downfield, one of those rare NFL gunslingers, Martavis Bryant became relevant. As it turns out, in Washington, Kirk Cousins is not actually a gunslinger. He puts up big numbers because he gets great volume because... The Washington coaches are one of the few rational play callers. So they understand you need to skew pass heavy because pass plays are much more efficient than run plays. So Kirk Cousins is good partly just because the Washington coaches get it. But that doesn't mean he's taking lots of chances down the field. He's actually not, which is why Terrell Pryor never fired. At least Ben Roethlisberger was, which allowed Martavis Bryant to post some 100-yard games and win some fantasy matchups. But that's not going to happen again. And Martavis Bryant was never an attractive option in a dynasty context. It's one thing to take a chance on a guy in the sixth round of a redraft league. It's another thing to invest in him in dynasty. That was never the recommendation. Every time Martavis Bryant came up on the Sonic Truth podcast, the conversation revolved around when to trade him, comparing him more to Josh Gordon than Terrell Pryor. Because the Sonic Truth podcast is a dynasty podcast. This happens to me a lot. A clip will be taken out of context from YouTube and waved around, showing how wrong I am. The context is key. Was this a dynasty conversation or a redraft conversation? With a player like Martavis Bryant, that really matters. And even in redraft, I've always believed Martavis Bryant was a great upside pick in the mid to late rounds, but he's never been someone you would trust with high round draft capital. But my position on Martavis Bryant is evolving as he has evolved this season. That's a Bayesian process, where as new information comes in, you adjust your forecast. 
That's why we're moving Martavis Bryant down our rankings across the board, seasonal, dynasty, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. And you can see the movement down the rankings. Why? Because that's a rational Bayesian process. When Martavis Bryant was trending toward reinstated and his value was close to zero, he rose. Now he's been benched. He falls. That's rational. The fact that Martavis Bryant was ever reinstated was improbable, but it happened. We were happy for him and we adjusted our forecast accordingly because no one in fantasy football had Martavis Bryant ranked outside their top 100 players in seasonal leagues. Even though I would admit that Martavis Bryant has never actually been good at football. You just need to look at the counting stats. You don't even need to look at the efficiency metrics because the efficiency metrics also betray Martavis Bryant. Every year, his catch rate is under 55% every year. Eventually, if you post enough seasons with a sub 55% catch rate, your coaches and your quarterback eventually view you as a player who is unable to squeeze the football. He's not a guy you can trust throwing it to him in tight windows or in traffic. And he's never been a guy they trusted in the red zone. This season, 12.9% red zone target share. 62nd in the league. That's all you need to know. How are they not targeting a player with a 1031 94th percentile catch radius in the red zone? They don't trust him. Clemson coaches and quarterbacks didn't trust him five years ago either. That's why I've always objected to ranking Martavis Bryant in the top 40 in Dynasty. He's not a player you build around, not a cornerstone Dynasty asset. He is an upside flyer in seasonal leagues. Martavis Bryant is the barstool sports of ESPN programming. The barstool has been benched by ESPN after one show, one van show, one van show that wasn't even noteworthy. Nothing controversial happened on episode one of the van show, van talk or van something, whatever. Doesn't matter. It's canceled because we get questions at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. What do you think of this barstool fiasco? (laughs) What do you mean? What do I think of the barstool fiasco? I predicted this would happen. I mean, exactly. Watching the barstool hiring and immediate firing by ESPN was like watching a movie I'd seen three or four times. I could just mouth the words as the characters were saying them on the screen. (laughs) Everything that happened was self-evident because I have a general idea about how these projects come into being, how they're launched. Because you would think an enterprise as large and sprawling as ESPN would carefully vet a new partner like Barstool. And certainly before the partnership was announced and before their first show ever aired. But that's not how these things typically go. My guess is that an executive at ESPN saw the download numbers for their show, pardon my take, saw the demographics that they were attracting and thought that that would be the perfect show to simulcast or create a spinoff version of at one o'clock in the morning on ESPN2. You can see how the idea was conceived just based on the numbers, just based on the download numbers and the demographics. I believe that's how the idea for that partnership was birthed. So it's conceivable that no ESPN executive ever visited barstoolsports.com, never listened to an episode of Pardon My Take. It's very conceivable that's how that sausage was made. Because if they had, they would have realized very quickly, oh wow, Barstool Sports is the lowest common denominator sports content in the industry. It is your source 
for ultra-sexist and misogynist content in sports media. And what happened? ESPN employees staged an insurrection. They rebelled against this partnership. I believe that it was canceled because of internal pressure, not external pressure. The employees that had nothing to do with this decision did the vetting for the executives and said, no, 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 no. See, what this site does is it exploits young women. Go check out their smoke show of the day and ask yourself, as a father, would you want that to be your daughter? who has her pictures harvested from social media and subjected to the gaze of ravenous frat goons. How would you feel about that? Not good, right? Not good? Okay. Maybe you don't want to be affiliated with that particular brand. We're ESPN. We're owned by Disney. Maybe not partner with Barstool Sports of all organizations in sports media. The place that specializes in objectifying women and generally just making people dumber. And don't call it raunchy. It's not raunchy. It's misogyny. Call it what it is. Calling it raunchy is a euphemism to excuse the behavior. You have a choice. Everyone has a choice across media. What type of content will you provide? Ask the question. Are you here to make people smarter or make people dumber? At playerprofiler.com, we choose to try to make people smarter. We could go out and try to make people dumber and get more clicks. Sure, we could just post softcore porn and gifs of rednecks accidentally blowing off their pinky toe on a rocket-propelled skateboard. But we're not Barstool Sports. <laughs> and the timing was rich. Post Harvey Weinstein? You're going to partner with Barstool Sports? This was the most fascinating component of the debacle. The confluence of factors and forces. That's how you get a show canceled after one innocuous episode. It wasn't the show. It wasn't the guys. It wasn't Big Cad. It wasn't Pro Football Talk Commenter. It was everything. It was the zeitgeist that killed the deal. This is not the climate in which you want to be exploiting women. And ESPN employee Sam Ponder stated this flatly on social media. And no matter how you feel about Donald Trump, there is a silver lining to this presidency that there is a general awareness of what it means to be respectful and dignified. Crude, lewd, rude behavior is now out in the open in a way it's never been. It's being flaunted by our presidency. This is why Barstool celebrated the arrival of Donald Trump, but now they're feeling the backlash and the confluence of factors with media moguls falling in the wake of scandals involving sexual misconduct. I mean, ask yourself, would you want your daughter to go work for Barstool Sports? I would not. Not because I believe she would be exploited as an employee, but every media organization has a choice. What type of content are you choosing to deliver? Because the easiest way to get clicks is always porn. You can always default to porn. If you're interested in clicks and you're interested in making money with a website, by far and away, the easiest path to generating revenue online is porn. Porn, 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 and more porn. The greatest value proposition. But why isn't every website just porn? Because some individuals choose not to partake. Pardon my partake. <laughs> in the proliferation of pornography. There's a spectrum. And content providers choose where on the spectrum they want to land. And my guess is that ESPN did not know 
where on the spectrum Barstool Sports landed until it was too late. And now the van show is canceled after one episode. And the questions I'm getting are, well, is ESPN in trouble? What does this say about ESPN? I've been getting some version of that question for years because ESPN subscribers are down considerably, but that's every media company. This is a structural shift. Americans are cutting the cord. They're consolidating their consumption of information and the cord running from the web of information that is out there into homes is being reduced to one. Instead of a cable cord and an internet cord, most people are reducing, streamlining their information consumption down to one single internet cord, and they're canceling their cable subscription, which was the primary way ESPN generates revenue. So of course ESPN will experience a decline in the wake of a massive structural shift in the way human beings consume media content. I was never concerned about ESPN because of declining subscriber numbers. My assumption was ESPN will adjust because ESPN is easily, by far and away, the most well-positioned company to adapt to a changing media consumption landscape. So they will become leaders in online sports content. So I never thought ESPN was actually in trouble until this Barstool Sports Partnership. Because that was a stunner to me. That was a signal to me. Oh, wow, ESPN's desperate. They're just blindly partnering with the company that's getting all the downloads in that young male demographic that the sports media companies covet the most. So this debacle has been a signal to me that things will be more tumultuous for ESPN than I originally assumed. But they are going to be fine. They are, after all, ESPN. They just miscalculated and quickly corrected their mistake. John Skipper understands the sell-low concept. Get out while you can. Trade Martavis Bryant while you can. Trade Terrell Pryor while you can. But Pro Football Talk commenter, whatever his name is, he also miscalculated. He has miscalculated staying with Barstool Sports. Sure, go work for Barstool Sports to help launch your career, but then you need to eject because PFT is genuinely talented. He's quick-witted. He's funny. That's a rare species in this industry, and it's largely wasted at Barstool Sports because that platform is not opening up PFT to new audiences. There's not a built-in subscriber base that PFT can just plug into like he could if he were at ESPN. He's carrying Barstool on his shoulders. I understand Big Cat is there too, but if I had to break it down into a ratio of who should get credit for the success of the Pardon My Take show, I think it's 80-20, PFT 80, Big Cat 20. That's my own personal, arbitrary ratio of credit allocation. PFT would be better off leaving Barstool, paying whatever fee or fine or penalty would be involved in doing so if he is in a contract, and just personally signing with ESPN and starting his own show. Maybe have me on. Every week. But he needs to let go of the shtick. He needs to take the sunglasses off. You're inside! Okay? A year or two, maybe, that shtick has legs and then it's over. Gotta take him off. I know, I know, it's rich, me of all people, criticizing a shtick, right? <laughs> 
but never stop trolling. Never stop trolling big media personalities. That I hope he never stops. But he can stop misspelling every tweet purposefully, right? That has to be tiring. Super tedious. He's about to send a tweet and then, oh no, I can't. Wait, wait, wait. I got to intentionally misspell a word. Imagine if that pressure was on you with every tweet to find some unclever way of misspelling a word. That would grind on my conscience. It was funny the first 50 times. He can let it go now. But he should never, ever, ever stop trolling.